Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inside the Fence Line, a Central Maryland AFCA small business podcast where we will be talking to the thought leaders, business owners, and technical experts shaping the world of defense and intelligence. Today, we will be speaking with Amy Rao, the Director of Recruiting at Shield Consulting Solutions. Amy has an extensive experience in recruiting and is quite active in the cleared recruiting community. Today, we will be discussing the nitty gritty of getting hired in the government contracting industry. Interviews are 100% always a two-way street. A candidate that isn't going in asking just as many questions as, as what the interviewers are asking of them is not doing their due diligence. The goal really today for folks is to learn what to expect when they work with someone like Amy, how they can position themselves to get hired, how they can be successful, and maybe what companies could do to do better with recruiting. So welcome, Amy. G- good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, let's get started with you know just trying to understand what recruiting is. I think our, our industry is a, um, not totally unique in that, but it might be a little different. So um, what I'd like to see is the audience really learn what is it is to work with you? What is a recruiter? What should they expect? So like from your perspective, what is recruiting? Like, What are your responsibilities and what are you involved in? So I am what's considered a full life cycle recruiter. And that means I do everything from sourcing candidates all the way through until they actually, you know, start day one with the company. Different companies in our industry are set up a little bit differently. So not every company's recruiter is a full life cycle recruiter. But for our discussion today, for our purposes, I'm going to focus on full life cycle recruitment, uh, simply because that's what I currently do. That's primarily what I've done the vast majority of my career within within government contracting. So when you talk about sourcing, can you, is, is that when, you know, we, we talk to a lot of candidates that are on LinkedIn and other platforms and they get a lot of contacts. Is, is that what you mean by sourcing or do you mean something else? Yeah, no, sourcing is, is actually finding a candidate. So, um, you know, it might be via a LinkedIn message, via an email. It could be via a text. It might be, you know, somebody waiting outside your car in the parking lot <laughs> when you leave work. I, I mean, I'm just kidding that, you know, we don't quite go to that level of stalkerism, but sometimes we feel like we have to. So it's, um, you know, it's basically finding the candidate to initially start the the discussions of you know getting them in the pipeline for the company so uh, so ultimately i mean you're trying to find the talent and trying to align them with the opportunities right so yeah so you're also responsible for knowing the positions the opportunities the contracts the work that you have right correct um another big part of my job is you know, all of the various contracts that we have access to staff going through, whether it be staffing portals or some contracts release their openings via just email blasts. Other contracts um, will actually, let me back up. It's pretty much either they have a staffing portal or they send them out via email, but they also have, um, you know, staffing meetings, whether it be 
weekly, biweekly, monthly that I attend to, you know, find out a little bit more about the openings. So I have a list of openings and at Shield, we're, you know, on 15 plus contracts all within the Fort Meade customer space. So at any given time, you know, we could have upwards of 100 and 150 open positions at any given time. But those are not just shield exclusive positions to staff. I mean, certainly, you know, we're competing with, you know, 30, 40, 50 other companies at the same time to staff all the same types of positions. So you have identified the talent, you you know, the openings, what, what where I think some folks get um, confused as the what is the the process from their perspective, right? So you've identified someone you've reached out, they've communicated back, what should they expect the next couple of steps to be when they're working with you? So with, with me, I will, you know, do the initial phone screen. And that's where I just kind of find out what is it that they want to do? Why is it that they're looking for a job? In reality, people don't just talk to recruiters if they don't have a reason to. Um, as much as I would love to say every single person I reach out to gets back to me, it's much more of a you knock on a hundred doors, one is going to answer kind of a situation. But if somebody is talking to you as a recruiter, it's because they they want something else. They are, you know, maybe they're actively looking and they know exactly what they want, or maybe they just had a really bad day at work and they're like, I got to get out of here. Let me figure out what to do. So, you know, it's just hoping and praying that it all aligns that, you know, my email or or inbox message will will come to the top of their mind on the day that they happen to want to talk. So, you know, when we're talking, I'm doing that initial phone screen to find out what it is that they want to do. And then it is up to me to kind of figure out you know, based upon what their wants and desires are, what positions on what contracts might be good fits for them. And then for me personally, I will then send them the various openings across the various contracts that align with their skill set, their career path, their education level, their, their career level. And then we kind of go through those openings and figure out which ones are, are best to pursue. So once they decide that they are interested in, are you still involved in the process, helping them get submitted and walking them through everything? Very much. So as a subcontractor, you need to have, well, you're supposed to have, not every company follows this, but whatever, you're supposed to have a signed contingent offer from the candidate prior to submitting them to a prime for consideration or if not a contingent offer, a letter of intent, something along those lines that um, you should have basically that is acting as a permission slip, that the candidate is agreeing to allow you to submit them to this particular position on this particular contract under the salary terms, all that kind of stuff. Most of our contracts have pretty extensive labor category templates that need to be filled out. So I'm also working very closely with candidates on getting their labor category templates completed and getting through that hurdle because 
oftentimes. If that piece of the puzzle isn't aligned, then they really have very little chance of, of getting looked at by the prime for consideration. Are you then involved in trying to help them set up the actual interview time and checking in after the interview with them? Yes, I, you know, coordinate with the primes directly on scheduling interviews with candidates. Um, I will follow up with a candidate after an interview to see their thoughts are on everything. I follow up with the primes directly trying to get feedback about the interview. And then fingers crossed, all the stars align, the prime accepts my candidate, my candidate accepts the position in return. I'm helping to guide them through the clearance transfer process. I'm helping to guide them through the um, new hire orientation process. Luckily at SHIELD, we do have a uh, dedicated HR manager that, that does all of the actual HR onboarding paperwork, all that kind of stuff. But I'm talking to the candidate throughout that process. And, you know, giving them first day reporting instructions of where they need to go. And then I'm following up with them all the way through their start date. After they start with the company, I'm checking back with them after the first week, after the first month, you know, just keeping that dialogue and relationship open, you know, making sure that they're happy and satisfied with everything. Yeah, that's great. That that sounds like, at least in your case, that you really are uh, the primary point of contact for them to shield into your company and that they can build a level of trust and comfort and rapport with you that uh, may be a little unique. And that's really good that they can you can help them walk through it. So you said a lot of things. You talked about templates. You talked about contingent uh, letters. You've talked about positions. Where Where can candidates really help themselves, right? Where can they help themselves be more successful? Um, is there any particular thing in general they could do? Is there specifics that they could do? Um, one of the biggest things is being available. When you're actively job searching, positions open and close all the time. So, you know, just because a position is open today might not mean that that position is still going to be available in a few days from now. So being available for communication, you know, being very responsive to email, you know, being responsive to phone calls or texts. I mean, you know, I tell all of my candidates, call, text, email, I'm available in some way, shape or form. And, you know, oftentimes I'm doing all three at once, particularly if we get to the point where the prime, you know, wants to set up an interview with the candidate you know, and I need your availability, then, you know, I'm going to be calling, texting and emailing you to try to get that response back to the prime as quickly as possible. And candidates have to understand that searching for a job is a time commitment. It is an investment in, in time. So you need to be available. You need to be responding to questions quickly particularly when it comes to the templates, you know, very rarely can I complete a template on my own based solely on somebody's resume. And that's not the candidate's fault. It's truthfully, it's the, the templates are the bane of my existence. And, you know, the templates often don't align with what the actual job even is. 
And so or they're asking things in a way that that people don't have that information on their resume anyway. So it's a lot of communication back and forth about that. So all in all, you know, candidates have to understand that if they're going to be looking for a job, it is a time commitment. And particularly also when they come to the interview portion or, you know, interviewing with primes, you know, you can't just say, oh, I'm only available at 445 on Thursday. Like you, you're going to have to flex your schedule a little bit. You're going to have to, you know, make excuses with your, your current project as to why you might not be able to be there or things like that. Because if you're really wanting to find a new job, you do have to be available, you know, during traditional business hours to do those interviews. Yeah. It sounds like one thing that maybe the candidates don't understand that you're kind of alluding to is you're kind of in the middle, honestly, right, Amy? Um, you know, the prime has expectations. They're not going to hold that position for an, for a particular person. And you're kind of trying to navigate between both. And I think often the candidates don't understand the pressures and the expectations that are being applied to yourself. Um, so, so that I mean, that was really good to say that they should really realize that the template's not something that you're just asking for because you want it and it's for fun. That's often a requirement, right? One hundred percent. And the thing about our industry that is a little bit frustrating is that whether or not you can actually do the job that needs to be done doesn't matter as much as you think it might. You know, there are three things that have to align. One is, do you have the right clearance level, which is, you know, pretty basic. I know for us at Shield, it's do you have the full scope poly or not? And then after that, it's can you meet the labor category requirements on the template that the position is opened in? And so that is a very big piece of the puzzle because even if you know you can 100% do this job, if you can't meet those labor category requirements, you're not going to get asked in for an interview with the prime. And that's not the prime's fault either. It's not like the prime makes up these templates. I mean, this is all, you know, mandated by our customer. So we all have to color within the lines of, of which we're given. Do you find that the candidates often understand the labor categories? Um, I, I know that what I have found is you have like your standard LCATs and your non-standard and uh, and it can get a little confusing for candidates as to, you know, between contracts. Have you found that's a confusing thing? Yes. And also, too, candidates, candidates get very caught up on labor category title, which they should not do. Because some, you know, some contracts are, you know, positioned levels zero through three. Others have levels one through six. So it's like they get so hung up on, you know, well, on on my last position, I was a systems engineer too. And I'm like, okay, that's that's great. On this contract, you're going to be a systems engineer one because that the labor categories are different. The years experience are different. Like 
people get so hung up on on actual job titles and labor category titles and it really does that's it's not important uh you know in in my opinion um and in the overall well-being of of this industry it's it's just not that important to get hung up on titles yeah you also mentioned about the contingent uh you know, offered letters, do you find that candidates are um, comfortable signing those? Do you, do you find that they should be comfortable signing those? Is there any advice um, or how they should deal with that? Should they be tracking where they're signing and being submitted to? Definitely. Every single company you're, you're talking to, if you're a candidate who is actively looking for a job, you need to create your own spreadsheet that you are working off of. And you need to list out every company you're talking to. You need to list out every contract that that particular company is talking to you about. You need to keep track of that company's individual benefits because so many people also get very hung up on a certain dollar amount that that an offer is that they don't necessarily look at a total comp package because one company's offer might be slightly less in actual base salary. But at the end of the day, because they offer so much more in benefits, your take home is going to be larger with that company than it might be with a company that has a higher, you know, dollar offer for, for salary. And that's something too. I think candidates don't really, really take into consideration total compensation package. And I do a lot of education with my candidates about that, about the value of, you know, total compensation package. And I've gone through candidates with with candidates with with benefits from other companies with versus the benefits that we offer at shield and kind of go through with them and show them, you know, Hey, look, our benefits are better because X, Y, Z. And a lot of that is candidate education. Yeah. That that's, that's pretty amazing that you do that and that you've been able to build some of the trust with the candidates that they're willing to kind of get that advice from you. Um, I really liked your spreadsheet idea that that's really good. Uh, it feels that candidates should be tracking that because um, I know each of the primes have different rules on candidate submission. Have you run into any cases where you've submitted a candidate and you weren't able to work with them because maybe another company or has submitted them? Yes, I actually just ran into this issue about two months ago. Um, I'm obviously not going to say the contract name, but I was working with a candidate. I had a signed contingent offer from the candidate that for this particular position, I went through with the candidate. I had done his template. Everything was good. I submitted him over to the prime. The prime came back and said, I'm sorry, he's already been submitted by another company. This, this candidate, I let him know that. And he said, no, I have not signed anything with any other company for this contract. Your company is the only one. I went back to the prime let them know the situation and said, you know, here is my candidate signed contingent offer letter dated on this date. 
if the other company can provide a similar document prior to this date and prior to my submission, then yeah, it's their candidate. But I guarantee this other company can't because based upon what my candidate said. And um, unfortunately, it uh, did not go our way. The prime came back and said that they weren't going to get involved in intercompany politics. And they ended up not interviewing that candidate anyway through either company. Whether or not they actually wanted to interview that candidate, I, I mean, who knows? They may have just decided to not interview that candidate because they didn't want to deal with, um, you know, the the bickering between companies. But, you know, it was a position that based upon the job description and based upon my candidate's resume, I felt that he was a very strong fit for this position. And, you know, unfortunately, it, it didn't work out for this candidate on this position on this contract. And we did end up losing him to, you know, another another company on another contract altogether. But it's it's very frustrating when you come across those kinds of issues. Yeah, that's a that's a very unfortunate situation. I think there was two big takeaways from that it was one that the candidates, you know, be very aware of who's submitting you. Um, which it sounds like maybe that person was doing that, but <clears throat> they also should realize there's cases where, again, that you're kind of at the mercy of the prime and ultimately yeah. they're making a decision that you may not agree with. Um, and unfortunately, and hopefully, but hopefully the candidate did not you know, view that poorly on you. And so, I mean, do you try to, uh, are you like, what do you share to candidates in those cases? I, I am curious, like what should candidates expect when they work with someone like yourself or another recruiter? Should they expect a little more transparency of what's going on? If if a recruiter is not being transparent with their candidate, I mean, that's a red flag. And it might not be the the recruiter, you know, it might not be the recruiter's fault, Different companies operate very differently, and there are a lot of companies that, you know, recruiters are sort of bound by what their their company can allow and the information their company is willing to share. Um, I mean, that is, you know, for me personally, one of the reasons that I am very pleased with Shield and, and with my position there is because... I can be 100% transparent and honest with my candidates all the time. And that's encouraged. But I know not every company operates that way. No, that's good. I mean, that's good. And I, I think that you've, you, you've given another piece of advice, right? Candidates should use their interaction with the recruiters as basically an assessment of what it's going to be like maybe working with that company. And uh, so... Also very true because... You know, if if a can or if a company is submitting a candidate, for example, to a position that they haven't talked to the candidate about, or to a contract that they haven't talked to the candidate about, that candidate really needs to think about: Is that a company I want to work for? That is going to you know do things behind my back without talking to me about it first. Yeah. So let's so they, let's say that you've had a successful submission, and then they're about to prepare for the interview. What's your advice? When they go into the interview, what should they expect? Should they be asking questions? Should they be doing certain things to prepare? Interviews are 100% always a two-way street. It is 
the a candidate that isn't going in asking just as many questions as as what the interviewers are asking of them is not doing their due diligence particularly in our industry where oftentimes job descriptions are very vague and they have to be i understand you know not all information can be shared based upon the nature of the work and things like that but Candidates have to go into an interview and they have to ask the, you know, any question that they feel is important to them. You know, they should be asking about team size, team dynamic, you know, actual day-to-day responsibilities, you know, what's expected, what, what type of schedules the team runs on. You know, all of that should be very discussed. It should be discussed very openly in an interview because it's never just about, you know, are they going to want the candidate? The candidate has to make sure that they're going to be happy working there, particularly in our industry where you can really like a company and you can really want to work for that company. But the reality is, is that very rarely, you know, are you working in that office with the same people from that company, you know, you're, you're working out on a contract with, you know, maybe 20 different people from five different companies. And, you know, you want to make sure that your actual day to day job, the ins and outs of that is going to be something that you want to do. Yeah, that's, that's very good advice. You, you had also mentioned, um, when you talk to candidates that you try to highlight the total compensation. I was curious, are there any other mistakes or missteps that you see candidates sometimes making, um, you know, areas where they could maybe that they're constantly doing that you think should be improved? I think the total comp was a really good example, but I want to see if there was any others. I think candidates really need to understand a little bit better labor category requirements. Um, for example, you know, getting a certification doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be able to qualify you for a higher labor category or taking a certain training is probably not going to change your labor category. So, you know, it's important for candidates to, candidates should be asking to see the labor category templates that they're being measured against. Candidates should be talking to companies about what those labor category requirements look like. Candidates should be talking to companies about their the company's own internal labor category bans and, and sa- salary bans because in our industry, most compensation is directly tied to what your labor category is on your particular contract. And it's also important for a candidate to to know when they'll qualify for the next highest labor category because they really need to be the ones to 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 know about that because if a candidate is a year away from qualifying for you know the next highest labor category then in a year when that candidate has that extra year of experience that's a great time to go and start talking about you know, changing your labor category on your contract because that's what's going to be able to raise your compensation. No, that's, that's really good advice. 
Um, so let's shift a little bit. We've been focused on how we can help potential candidates and, and engineers that are in the industry. Where can small businesses do better in recruiting? Where do you think that they're kind of, uh, you know, maybe slacking or maybe need to improve? Oh, um, with small businesses, you know, obviously the more contracts you're on, the better chance or the, the more options you have to give to your candidates that you're working with. You know, if you're a really small company and you're on, you know, only three or four contracts, the, the amount of stars that need to align that a particular position is opened on one of those particular contracts at the same time that you have a candidate with those skill sets, you know, with those years of experience that also happen to be looking, you know, it, it's a, it's a lot. Um, recruiting is definitely not a linear kind of thing. I mean, it is a roller coaster all over the place and, you know, you can do everything right, quote unquote, and you, you still might not get a hire. And it's just whether or not, you know, certain, certain stars align. Um, another thing that companies can do really well is try their, try their best to dig down a little bit deeper into finding out a little bit more about the contracts or about particular positions. You know, we all know some contracts do a really good job of giving detailed position descriptions. And then there's just as many that give a post-it notes worth of information or the contracts that just put out a, a repeating of the labor category templates as a job description. And I'm like, that's not a job description. That's just labor category requirements. So that's very frustrating. So having, having a good relationship with the contracts that you have access to staff is one of the most important things a a company can do to, you know, increase their chances of being successful in in hiring people. So what do you do what do you do in that case when the prime has very vague or generic openings? Um you know, I do my best to communicate with the staffing leads for those contracts to try to ask if they can give any additional information. Certainly, the hands down best way to find out is, you know, fingers crossed, you happen to have somebody who's already working at your company who's on that particular team. I mean, that's the ideal scenario, because that's really the only way you truly can know what what's being done there. But, you know, that that's always not realistic, especially for, as companies are trying to expand their footprint across different contracts and things like that. You know, sometimes a candidate is going to be the first person you've ever staffed on that contract or the first person you've ever staffed on that team. So you don't have that in. Um, program managers can be, you know, really, really valuable internal company program managers communicating with the program managers on the prime, you know, it, it's, you, you kind of have to go at it all ways to try to get as much information as possible. So, but at the same time, you know, I do have conversations with candidates of, Hey, this is all the information I have for you. I'm sorry, I don't know anything else about this job. You know, 
if if it's even at all of interest to you, let's throw your hat in the ring and see what happens. So you've kind of already, uh, my next question was going to be advice for the primes and you've kind of already alluded to something where they could do better is maybe, you know, provide a little more information about the positions. Is there other suggestions you think where primes could improve how they work with candidates or subcontractors that are trying to bring on candidates? A lot of working with primes is very hurry up and wait. You, you know, you work your best to get a candidate in as quickly as possible. When a prime contacts you about wanting to set up an interview with the candidate, you know, I know many recruiters, myself included, we do our best to get back to the prime as quickly as possible with that candidate's availability. And then sometimes we don't hear anything for like a week. And so then it's hard too, because then you look like a liar to your candidate and you're like, I swear to God, they really wanted to interview you. (laughs) You know, we're just waiting. And I know it's not necessarily, I mean, it's not the fault of the staffing people on the, on the contract on the prime side. A lot of it is, you know, then they're coordinating with engineers on their teams to try to get schedules set. And sometimes it's, the the interviewers on that particular team have very limited availability or they're, you know, not getting back to to the staffing leads with their availability. So, you know, just if there's anything a prime can do to speed up the process of scheduling an interview or getting feedback back to the company about a candidate after an interview, that would always be incredibly helpful, particularly when it's a high need candidate and you know they're actively looking elsewhere. And sometimes after a candidate interviews, it might be a week or more before you hear back from that prime. And that is that is tough. All I can think about when, when you're describing these different situations is that you're kind of like, I don't know if a traffic controller is the right but you're you know you're trying to buffer on the the one side and the left side and coordinate and make everything aligned and it's it's very challenging right to get everybody's schedule aligned and their needs and the i don't know so it that kind of brings me to to the last section i'm curious how are you tracking all this like how are you like do you have any secrets like productivity secrets of how you're keeping all this straight tools or processes for me personally no i am well, that's great just- I, I mean, I wish, you know, I had this amazing advice of, you know, how organized I am or things like that, but that is not the case at all. It is literally just, you know, I am, I've got my lists of candidates. I, I am a little bit old school in that um, I kind of live off of a whiteboard. You know, I've got my list of candidates that I'm working with. I've got where they are in the process. Like, I'm a visual person, so I need to kind of, like, keep that in front of my face at all times. And that definitely helps me. So, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have some some magic answer of, like, the most ideal way to to recruit or to keep candidates organized or, or anything like that. But the simplest process might be the best process. And it sounds like you have something in place where you're tracking and you have that constant reminder of your focus for the day or your candidates. So, I mean, I think that's a good takeaway. 
Um, so we're, we're about to wrap up, Amy, but what I always like to end with is a recommendation. This can be a book, a show, anything that you're kind of interested in. It, it doesn't have to be related to recruiting. I, I'm just curious if there's anything uh, that the audience could you know enjoy that you've enjoyed. Um, I am, I'm actually looking forward to starting the new season of Cobra Kai. I have not, uh, gotten to that yet. I know it came out a couple weeks ago and, you know, just trying to align, um, my availability with my husband's availability to watch it together can sometimes be a little challenging, um, because there's so few shows that we enjoy watching together and that's one of them. So I am, I'm looking forward to uh, catching up on the new season of that. Yeah. It's a good season. I, uh, I've watched it. It's, 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 I won't spoil it, but it's a good season and it sets up, please don't. Yeah. I, it sets up the yeah. next season or it sets up potential for next season. I think that could be interesting. Okay. Um, okay. Well, there you have it, everyone. Uh, today we, we, we got a lot of information about recruiting. Hopefully, uh, candidates learn some lessons of where they can improve or where they can work with recruiters more successfully. Um, there's a lot going on when you're dealing with candidates and comp- companies and opportunities. And I think Amy has done a terrific job uh, doing that and also explaining all the uh, details about that. So thank you, Amy, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you to the audience for tuning in. Uh, please be sure to look for the next episode and tell your friends to sign up. With that, thank you, Amy. Have a good day. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to the Inside the Fence Line podcast. A special thanks to Devin McBride, Brendan McBride, Kirsten Miller-Jones, and the Central Maryland FCA chapter for helping to make this podcast come to life.